0: You're listening to The Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into The Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to The Economics Review. Our guest today is a former diplomat, senior political analyst, author, and environmental entrepreneur. From 2004 to 2006, he was one of the handful of U.S. diplomats posted to Libya to help set up a U.S. mission in the wake of the rapprochement of Colonel Gaddafi. Six years later, as co-director of an NGO working to help build medical infrastructure in eastern Libya, he became witness to the Benghazi attack and its aftermath. A year later, he was nominated by both Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator John McCain to succeed Chris Stevens as ambassador. From 2020 to 2021, he was the senior advisor to the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of the UAE. Holding a PhD in resource economics from UC Berkeley, his latest book is titled Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and the world to its brink. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Ethan Chorin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background.
0: Well, I I was trained as an agricultural economist, as you mentioned, um, but I've spent most of my career as uh, in in international affairs as a diplomat and working for a variety of uh, of companies and 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 NGOs. I was based in in Libya from 2004 to 2006. And then, as you said, I returned uh, as a, uh, a private citizen in 2011, to work on a medical infrastructure project, actually, several of them. Uh, in that context, uh, we became uh, witnesses to the to the uh, pr- precedence, the, the the attack itself and 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 its immediate aftermath.
1: So why why Libya? Why send yourself into into such a volatile political scenario?
0: Well, my first posting in the Foreign Service was to was to Libya as the uh, then Economic and Commercial Officer, and it was a somewhat an unusual first posting. And I, I think I owe a lot of the uh, I, I felt luck of that assignment to the fact that the iraq war was uh, in full force and most of the arabic speaking uh, middle east hands were sort of vacuumed up into into iraq related uh work so there there weren't many people who had arabic and some uh relevant uh, uh commercial experience so I, I i felt i lucked out i mean it was an opportunity to look under the hood of a country that had been uh, outside the the realm of u.S uh eyes for for uh for more than 20 years uh, and it just sounded and of course it had a at the time sort of uh wacky uh, uh and uh, also somewhat uh, uh uh harsh leader uh it's an understatement uh, muammar Gaddafi uh who who was known to be a very colorful uh figure so I mean it it, it had all the makings of, a, of an adventure and I I was very pleased to to get that assignment and in the process uh I wound up meeting literally thousands of libyans and uh, becoming very attached to the people the country and uh and and it's uh, it's predicament, a general predicament at the time
1: well that's that that's certainly a, a hell of an adventure i mean not not a lot of people would would have the guts to to, to go into to a situation like that. So well,
0: um, at the time, it wasn't, I mean, it was considered to be reasonably safe. Uh, the United States had just concluded a, a deal with Gaddafi to bring him in from the cold. Uh, and uh, Gaddafi's Libya was a police state. So the general assumption was that, uh that our security interests then were taken, taken care of, but it wasn't quite what it seemed, there were a lot of things going on under the in the background, which as uh, as State Department employees, we didn't, uh, I certainly wasn't aware of until many years later.
1: Yeah, so I, I wanted to start today by sort of asking you to, to walk us through the timeline on that night as and your personal recollection as as each stage of the attack was unfolding.
0: Well, um, as I argue in in this in this book, the the everything that has to do with Benghazi requires context. So most of the the American certainly and and world attention to to that event on September 11, thousand twelve, uh, focused on the sort of thirteen hours around the attack. But in 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 fact, the the, the there were several sort of uh, overlapping circles of, of of context, which are really helpful to understand what's going on there. I personally. Okay, so we were in the process of completing this this medical infrastructure project that linked American and Libyan medical institutions. Uh, and we had progressive progress over the course of the previous year in the wake of the US intervention in 2011. And uh, while we were making progress on several of these projects. Uh, the security situation in Benghazi and eastern Libya was getting really dicey, and uh, by the day, basically. So, and essentially, Chris Stevens, Ambassador Stevens, and I had been in contact for quite some time. I'd known him since my first posting in Libya, and um, I think we were sort of oddly making decisions about whether to travel to Benghazi or similar ca- calculations about whether to travel travel under those circumstances at that time. And I think we both felt individually and for different reasons that we had to, to accomplish what we had set out to accomplish. Or if we had waited, uh, it would be even harder, if not impossible to do those things. So as the uh, I arrived and, and Ambassador Stevens arrived the day before the attack, uh, I did, we didn't know that we were both in the city at the same time. I was, uh, again, the, the day of, before the attack, he and I had been in contact. Um, I informed him of the progress on our medical project. He was really quite thrilled. Uh, I was surprised that he was there, given the the danger to 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 all of us. Um, and you know, uh, Benghazi has its periods of sort of grand calm and and upheaval. And at the time, you know, it looked deceptively calm, but we had been, my colleagues and I, had been in uh, sort of uh, dicey situations in Eastern Libya before over the previous uh, year, um, and were on, on you know, alert that uh, things things could think it was the anniversary of 911, things could, anything could happen. Um, Chris had invited me to dinner at the mission the night of the attack. Uh, and I had, I had this, I recall thinking about that many, many times since, uh, because had we accepted, uh, we would have been at the compound presumably while the attack was underway. As it was, uh, we heard of the attack from uh, another contact, Libyan contact, just while we were at our hotel, which was about uh, two and a half miles away. Um, and there was this notion that something was going on at the at the mission, did, and none of us knew what what it was. And then all of a sudden, there was a uh, a loud uh, mortar. Uh, explosion. And uh, I I was back conferring with my colleague at that point, we both looked at each other going, okay, this is linked to what this suspicious activity at the mission, this was not good. Um, And then it clearly it became clear that there was a major sort of shootout at the at the at the mission, I was on the phone with the mission while the attack was underway. And I had called uh, one of the security people that was tied to Ambassador Stevens, and I didn't recognize the voice on the end of the and other end of the line. They were clearly sort of hoping that I was somebody that could provide some assistance, and I obviously wasn't. So the phone call sort of abruptly ended. But we could hear the the gunfire and 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 mortar shots pretty pretty um, pretty clearly, and had a really hairy night as the hotel was surrounded by, or at least right in proximity to a lot of, of quasi-military uh, act- activity, um, gatherings of militia people and um, uh, sort of small personnel carriers and things like this. And we weren't sure whether the hotel itself was under attack. Of course, this was all during the night. So I was sort of, we were crouched uh, you know, by the window. Uh, I was in my, my room, with an over, overlooking the, um, the sort of main uh, lake uh, uh, by the Tibesti Hotel, hotel, uh, and sort of watching all this activity and trying to figure out what the heck was going on, and how the heck we were going to get out of there and whether we were targets. Um, so this, this, this adventure continued through the night into the early morning hours. When, ironically, we were um, Again, I, I don't want to continue on this story if you
1: have another question
0: but I can continue the
1: the the narrative No, uh, by by all means keep keep going it's a very very interesting story
0: so the in the in the early morning I fell asleep at one point and um I describe all of this in the first in a prologue to the book it's a sort of a, a long uh sort of view of all, all of this sort of uh, very puzzling activity. Um, and when I woke up, I, th- I I wasn't sure how long I was asleep for, but when I woke up, I um, I noticed I, I went to the window and it was light uh, now and all of the personnel and the material and the cars and everything that were around the the, the hotel when I had started, when I fell asleep were gone and the, the, the city was completely dead quiet. So it was a very bizarre, um, I was sort of wondering whether I'd imagined part of this. Anyway, I, we we made our way to the to the uh to the hospital where we were uh doing this project um and it turned out that the hospital was uh treating some of the people not only had had that been where ambassador stevens was brought unconscious uh and unresponsive um but there were other people um uh, members of the militia that attacked the the mission and later the CIA annex were being treated there so there were f- sort of friendly people and uh unfriendly people and we were instructed not to not to leave the offices where we were or to let anybody know that we were there and the people the hospital administrators were very um extremely helpful and 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 in in basically helping us get seats on on a flight out that that night the American, the rest of the official americans were uh, evacuated earlier in the morning so we realized that we were sort of left alone there um i was no longer a diplomat uh so um uh and then we uh so i remember standing on the on the tarmac waiting for the uh, waiting to board the airplane uh that would take take us take me to turkey and thinking you know oh my gosh not only was i horribly saddened by ambassador stevens death um I didn't know about the other how many other casualties there were. We knew there were 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 others. Um, But I was just I was also thinking that that this basically meant the end of American involvement in Libya for the foreseeable future. And um, or at least the beginning of that end. And I I had this feeling that this would have a tremendous consequence or at least a much greater consequence than one might have guessed based on just the bare facts there. Um, and. So, uh, anyway, by the time I got back to um, to the United States, I had to wait in Istanbul for a few um, several days for my colleague, my remaining colleague, to get out of out of Benghazi. But when uh, when we got back to the states, uh, you know, we hadn't been following, the, able to follow the American news that carefully. And but by the time we got back to the states, it was almost as if. There were sort of we'd entered into a completely alternate reality from the one that we'd witnessed. The political machinery had already, and the conflict, political conflict around what happened, was already in full force. And there was an enormous amount of of information that just was wasn't true. Uh, And we had very we had various debates on how to sort of correct some of that information. We had been interviewed by the FBI, both myself and my uh, my my uh, colleague in the NGO and you know many of the obvious the questions that became so contentious later were never asked of us uh and by the time uh, we you know and again it was a surreal experience because it felt like um you know most of the witnesses on the ground of which there were a number uh and senior western Individuals, both diplomats from other countries and corporate people, and ourselves. I mean, we had more of an oral uh, witness than a than a sight sight witness uh, scenario, but there was plenty of information to the you know, the idea that this that this wasn't a a planned attack and that there was no protest was very clear to us. And the protest refers to this uh, anti Muslim video that had been released and dubbed. Uh, uh, Weeks before, and dubbed into um, into Arabic uh, a few days before the uh, before the attack and the att- and the protest and attack against the U.S. embassy in Cairo. So back home in the states, there was this whole debate about where did this attack come from. But on the ground, it was very clear that this was a a terrorist attack. So there was this. I, I had this you know wrestling with myself for for a number of months uh and also uh, you know until I I testified before the Benghazi committee um several years later that uh you know I don't want to get I don't want to get sucked into the into the political conflict but it was truly surprising that that it wasn't made much more clear much quicker what what had happened there um and I think that part of that that uh that curiosity and the, and the the trauma of that event drove me to try to to try to sort of piece together and reconcile the the truth and the and the falsehood in both Democratic and Republican narratives and come up with what I think is is something that is um, much more um, aligned with with the basic facts.
1: Yeah. So you, you mentioned something interesting there, um, towards, towards the start of your description of, of that evening. Um, you, you mentioned how the, the situation in Benghazi, I mean, you, you noted that there was, um, you know, there, there were periods of upheaval. Um, so, I mean, when, when you were there, you were, you were obviously in the city. Um, can, can you tell us a bit about what, what that upheaval looks like? How, how you would know if, if, you know, there are some sort of, perhaps an impending impending danger or some sort of impending attack or or would it be completely um you know uh, or, or were you guys completely oblivious to the fact that that was a possibility
0: Well no, no we've been been back and forth to Benghazi since uh July of 2011 so months after the start of the uh revolution in February and I'd say we'd had a, out of out of six or seven trips uh, total, we had you know th- three or four of them had some major major uh, uh, s- scary incident. Um, you know, we'd be walking around the old the the, the the sort of the old city by the port of Benghazi and young people with with guns would, you know, at one point confronted us about uh, whether we were looking at uh, some piece of of graffiti or something. Um, And and that, that was a very tense, tense situation. There were attacks on Westerners pretty much constantly during that period, but they became much and much more uh, frequent uh in uh, in the, the the months before the the Benghazi attack and, and those targets were mainly uh, Western diplomats uh, human aid worker uh, workers um and local civil society leaders so you know it was clearly a we, we were under no uh del- illusion that this was a very dangerous environment. I felt a little bit more comfortable in Benghazi as did uh, Ambassador Stevens clearly because I knew the city from my past uh time there as a diplomat um and and I had many many good friends uh there um and colleagues so um but it wasn't it, it, you know we we looking back on that whole experience I think uh, I and my 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 immediate colleague and partner were were sort of surprised that we had the the sort of blinders on to continue with this project knowing what we did. I mean we we knew that we were we were taking risks. Um but whether we would do it again, I don't, you know, uh in hindsight it, it almost seems uh, a bit crazy. Um but there were very strong reasons to do it. I mean I really I have to say uh I was very much believing that uh um that that Libya had, that the United States had a shot and Libya had a shot at creating something positive
1: from the, from, from the aftermath of, of, of the Gaddafi regime. Okay. So now that, that sort of begs a, a whole different question, right? About security at the compound. So, I mean, one would assume that in, in a situation that volatile and that dangerous, you know, people like you on, on the ground there had, had a good idea that this situation was volatile, the situation was dangerous, that an attack wasn't only you know a possibility that it was actually you know maybe likely, um you know you you'd think that the U.S. military would take every precaution to ensure that any of its its personnel were well defended and and, and ensure that assistance was available in case of an attack you know um you know this isn't this isn't you know guys weren't in in, in Sweden um this is this is <laughs> Libya in a in a very volatile situation so. I can understand for the life of me, what on earth, I mean, what, what kind of oversight took place here that would allow this sort of, um, you know, massive, massive um, lack of security to, to occur?
0: Well, I think it, part of it is is a bureaucratic problem. And part of it is a question of defining the or an ill-defined set of, of, of objectives. On the one hand. I think the United States, the Obama administration were were comfortable enough to intervene in Libya, but were uncomfortable doing much more. And I think that many of the diplomats on the ground, and certainly Chris Stevens, Ambassador Stevens, felt that you know we we couldn't possibly intervene without some form of, if not state building capacity, then uh support for um you know demobilization, disarmament, and um and and reconstruct and and, and sort of um, civil society uh, support, um, if not outright democracy support. So and a number of, you know, a number of uh, officials that I interviewed for the book, uh, actually quite a large number, felt that, in fact, this focus on democracy as the prime as the sort of official driving force for motivation for any action after the intervention was sort of misplaced, that uh, you really needed to pay attention to security first and um, democratic processes second, uh, because the second can't, uh, the the first can't uh, happen without the second. Um, so, the you know, on one hand, you had somebody like Ambassador Stevens who believed, who understood that Benghazi was a, an extremely uh, critical piece to the to to keeping Libya and the Libyan revolution on on track. It was a politically very uh, important and sensitive piece of that puzzle, and he was clearly. I had many conversations with him about about this. Was clearly uh intending to 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 try to 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 draw washington's attention back to benghazi the the capital of the, the of the government the center of government had shifted back to the capital of previous capital of tripoli after the revolution and chris wanted to make sure that the united states did not forget about benghazi um because the country couldn't be kept whole if it fell apart so that's the that was the it wasn't that he was off on a pleasure holiday during nine, during the anniversary of 9-11, he felt it was really important to be out there. And he knew that that uh, the security situation out there was was far from uh, optimal, in fact, was miserable. And that has to do a lot with the fact that the mission itself was not a formal um, consulate or embassy. And in the bureaucracy of the State Department, the uh, security, the amount of security you get for a given outpost is directly linked to its diplomatic status. So this is one of the things that Brist was out there trying to do was to uh, take care of a a few administrative matters, uh, uh, as well as some other things during that period so that the, the mission could be upgraded to a consulate and get all of those additional resources, at least some of them. And the idea was that Secretary Clinton was going to come out and announce this a few a few weeks later, bringing further sort of light onto the situation in Benghazi. So it was almost it, w- it was a it was almost, you know, this type of, of, of sort of solo <laughs> diplomacy has been called expeditionary diplomacy, uh, because it it uh, in, in light of its high risk and chris as as uh secretary clinton pointed out various times during the interview i had with her um the uh risk element was always present with practically everything that chris did from the start of the re- start of the revolution when he was sent as envoy i mean the what he what he went out to do in benghazi uh, in 2012 was, uh, in some ways, you might even say less risky than some of the risks things he he did when he was envoy, uh, being completely um, to the transitional governments at the start of the revolution, I think he was. So, you know, yes, sure, the United States really should have had uh, um, a whole array of resources at its disposal. But given the nature of the intervention, which was, uh, very much sort of hands off and re- remote, and relied on on allies and proxies. Um, there simply wasn't the 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 um, the necessary protection. And there were another a few other random factors having to do with assignments of security personnel from Tripoli to Benghazi at the time of the at the time of the trip. Um, if any one of those things might have been some, somewhat different, there were some security people who were who knew Benghazi much better than some others, and they were swapped out at the last minute for other people who didn't know the city very well. And on the whole, that's a whole other issue is that we really didn't have enough people within the bureaucracy who had spent much time in Benghazi at all. So pretty much everybody in the foreign service that was in the country was relatively new, with the exception of, of Chris Stevens. And lots and lots of deference was paid to chris Chris's views. Um, but at the same time, you know, on a policy level, but at the same time, Chris was asking for for uh, more and more security and didn't and didn't get it. And which I think is, I mean, that's a, it's sort of hard for the, I think, for the general public to understand you know, how, how that could be. But, you know, the Foreign Service has been starved of funds for a long time, um, and there is not enough money to, to to essentially protect American diplomats to the degree that they need to be protected abroad. Um, and decisions are made by, um, not, you know, not always by indirect consultation with the people on the ground. Or at least sufficient consultation.
1: Well, of, of, of all the issues in in the world, I, I never would imagine that not enough funding would be an issue for something like the U.S. military. Um, well, it's as- the
0: state. It's the it's the State Department. Um, the State Department has been underfund has you know been been underfunded for a long time, uh, and the victim of a, of sort of political warfare between Democrats and Republicans uh, who have very different ideas about how much resources diplomacy should be allotted.
1: And well, diplomatic security suffers greatly from that. Yeah, you you also mentioned that the the amount of security was linked to the diplomatic status. That that also sounds like a a whole bunch of of, of political nonsense. Um, you know, I I mean, I I can imagine why you wouldn't link the level of security to the level of danger, as would seem to be common sense.
0: Well, that surely that's that's it. With, that's within the decision algorithm there, but not. Uh, but there are so it's so it's like a step function you know you essentially until you recognize and this is just a this is just a fact of the bureaucracy and it should be of course it should be changed and there were some amendments that were made after the after to to the whole process review process after the attack but my guess is not nearly enough uh you know i think we're in danger uh of uh of, of repeating this kind of incident uh in the future uh, because they you know it it happens over and over. I mean, you have to also put that into a little bit of perspective in the sense that over the years, there have been very few for, for State Department people who have been killed in, 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 in the course of duty. Um, we hear about the, the things that, that went really bad, but you now we don't hear about the things that were prevented. Um, but at the same time, there's no question Benghazi was a ma- massive screw up. And it, it resonated for me because you know I recalled my my period back in Tripoli as a diplomat, and uh, and we had no security whatsoever. Um, I mean that's a there there were security personnel, but we were not we were not protected. Um, the, we had Libyan guard. We lived in a hotel that was essentially the meeting place and the headquarters for a number of American companies, and and the mission itself. And we had uh, so if anybody wanted to hit to disrupt the U.S. Gaddafi relationship at that point, the thing to do would have been hit that to hit that hotel. Um, and, you know, we had Libyan guards who, while uh, very pleasant, were, were often asleep um, and no protection on, you know, at the front of the hotel. And there were cables going back and forth saying, Please, you know, we need to we need we need some base more. We can't rely just on on Gaddafi's security forces to uh, to protect us out here. So I got progressively worried as I was. You know, this is back in 2005, 2006. I I got progressively worried that I did not want to be pr- present there when something bad happened.
1: So I mean you 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 also um, you also talk about um, sort of the the impact that this has had on Libya. So you, I think you mentioned in a in a previous talk that Libya entered a, a downward spiral. And that the data would reflect that fact. I mean, GDP in Libya has absolutely plummeted. It's it's about a third of, of what it was um, since since then. You can you can see it fall off a cliff after after that period. So I, yeah, I, mean, no, I Libya
0: became a, a failed yeah. Libya was on the verge of a failed state and it became essentially a failed state. Um or a state and a state that whose separate parts are being manipulated by outside powers for their own benefit. And some of the obvious winners from that have been Russia and Turkey, who have essentially become sort of uh, along with with several of the Gulf states. Um, So and, you know, every every, everybody has their own rationale for being there um, and. Uh, from the West perspective, we pick, you know it's 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 also sort of bizarre because essentially two of the main fighting parties in Libya, the uh the radical uh, uh Islamists and the uh, general who who fought them back uh were at one point on you know uh were were allied to the us. so we essentially created the we created in 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 the past and with with trying to reconcile with Gaddafi all of these. These situations where that that bred more conflict. And there hasn't been a consistent policy over this whole period.
1: So, I mean, uh, finally, I wanted to, to sort of finish off by talking about the impact that this has had on America. So that, that sort of brings us, to, brings us to the crux of this book, um, which is how Benghazi pushed uh, the, the Benghazi, Benghazi attack pushed America to its brink. So um, the, the issue obviously became highly politicized from both sides. So naturally that meant there was a lot of empty rhetoric and accusations. The issue sort of turned into a binary. I mean, either you accepted the left-wing media's version of what happened, or you accepted the right-wing media's version of what happened. But I mean, beyond all the noise that we've seen, I'd imagine there was a, a lot of internal changes that took place. Um, you know uh, a, a lot of sort of um impact that was that was less you know there was less of the noise that we saw on the surface, but more more that took place um internally um so can you tell us a bit about what you mean when when you say this attack pushed America to the brink?
0: yeah, I think um that the attack in most Americans mind the attacks sort of came out of nowhere. Link, you know, uh, was with us in, in the media constantly for nearly four years of just, you know, and, and the details were obscure and none of none of these stories made a whole lot of sense with the video and the um, and other elements and the security and the claims that uh, Hillary Clinton ordered us ordered to stand down uh, all of this other stuff. And then it, then it kind of morphed into other 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 political scandals and we forgot about it. Um, Or at least we didn't, we got so sick of it that we never wanted to talk about it again. And my main main argument in the book is that look, this, this attack had a a, a background, it didn't just come out of nowhere, it, it, there were several things that, that, uh, you know, policy elements that that made it almost inevitable. And the uh, the results of the attack were were actually very profound in the sense that it it caused a on, in foreign policy it caused a a ra- rather pervasive risk aversion. So the, the United States did not want, you know, sort of like every bureaucracy in, the, in Washington was afraid to make a strong action abroad for fear that it would provoke another set of congressional committees and people would be high you know and scapegoating all, all of the rest of it. And we relied increasingly on uh, remote remote warfare like you know in Yemen with the with the drones. Uh, and uh, we pulled our spies and our diplomats back behind uh, even more back behind uh, high walls. And missed a number of developments, like the. Uh, and This is sort of a broad statement that needs to be qualified, but the Houthi uh, movement in Lib- in uh, in Yemen and the Iran backing of the Houthis was sort of took second second seat to our obsessive obsession with uh, the Yemeni arm of Al Qaeda. So essentially, we we kind of shot ourselves in the foot with 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 this risk aversion aversion. Um, and it had, as I describe in the book, various sort of real impacts on other conflicts in the region, in Syria, and etc. Et, et and um, and the people who and the powers that that benefited from this most were our adversaries, you know, Russia, uh, China, um, and others. Um, and on a political level, Benghazi's impact has been sort of, you know, it's almost so obvious that we miss it. It it was a uh a, caused a sort of a, a huge surge in polarization. Um it occurred one of the one of the you know, I go into great detail in the book about why Benghazi was such a perfect political scandal, but it's it's uh the fact that it that it occurred just at the cusp of the 2012 election uh and at a point in the development of social media where the algorithms of facebook and twitter etc could could help polarize the polarize a feedstock for which benghazi was be, turned benghazi into a major polar, polar polarizing event and i also argue that uh you know again this is so, somewhat obvious but it's been it's been kind of pushed aside for both sides by different for different reasons the benghazi attack uh was the sort of common denominator behind practically everything every other factor that was uh, blamed for or credited for Donald Trump's election um, and some several senior uh, Obama officials you know basically uh, concur concurred quite quite strongly with that that Benghazi really was a major factor in the 2016 election so and you take it all together um, you know, I think the major lesson is that you know American foreign policy has become a tool of American domestic warf- political warfare, and that has to stop. And the best way to, to or at least the most immediate thing to focus on is making sure that that the security and diplomatic bureaucracies are insulated from politics. And and I think the, the Iraq War and nine eleven were the sort of the start of uh, American. Presidential administration sort of mucking about with the bureaucracies and sort of picking and choosing what advice they they think they want for political reasons, and marginalizing the experts. And I think that's the real that's one of the real dangers and one of the reasons why we really need to take a second look at what happened in Benghazi and why it, why it matters today.
1: Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Doctor Joran. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.